the Talking Race podcast from the Centre for Race, Education and Decoloniality at Leeds Beckett University. Dr. Rita Coley is an Associate Professor of Teaching and Teacher Education in the School of Education at the University of California, Riverside. She is a co-founder and co-director of the Institute for Teachers of Colour Committed to Racial Justice, ITOC. Rita is a scholar of critical race theory in education. Her research examines structural racism and initiatives for racial justice within teaching and teacher education with a specific focus on the professional experiences of teachers of colour. She is co-editor of the book Confronting Racism in Teacher Education, Narratives from Teacher Educators and the sole author of the book Teachers of Colour, Resisting Racism and Reclaiming Education. Rita Coley is also the recipient of multiple awards for her work and her research. Welcome Rita Coley to the Talking Race podcast and from the Centre for Race Education and Decoloniality at Leeds Beckett University. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about your work and your research, please. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to, to be in this podcast with you. Yes, my work is uh, I'm, a, I'm an associate professor at the University of California, Riverside. My work is focused on naming, analyzing, and disrupting racism across teaching and teacher education and supporting the, essentially the racial literacy growth of educators towards a more racially just schools. I was trained in critical race theory by Daniel Solarsno, who was my advisor, um, one of the first scholars to bring critical race theory into education. And I've used this lens to bring what I would say is specificity and humanity into our understanding of how racism and whiteness plagues our education system and has impacts on Black, Indigenous, and people of colour communities. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit more about your, you, you said you use critical race theory, but what have you have the findings of your research shown you? And can you tell us a little bit more about how you've invoked critical race theory in your work and within your findings as well? So a primary domain of my work is around diversity in the teaching force, but more specifically looking at the racialized experiences of teacher educators of color. And so for, for much of the research that's existed outside of this work has been really about recruitment for teachers of color, diversifying the teaching force. And I think I've, I've been, I've used critical race theory as a means to really understand how we can contextualize this recruitment in understanding that this is a profession incredibly dominated by whiteness and how that actually impacts teachers of color as people who's humans in this, in this racialized world and racialized work. And so I've used concepts of interest convergence of whiteness as property and the permanence of racism to really frame and understand the it's the stories, the counter stories of teachers of color in schools. That's really helpful. I, I wondered if you could just expand on that a little bit um, in terms of explaining to our audience about the concept of interest convergence 
and also about the way in which you've used that in your work and by just by illustrating uh, some of your research? So, I mean, I think Derek Bell, who was one of the most prominent originators of critical race theory, developed the notion of interest convergence as a way to explain what he saw as the permanence of racism and to really start to help us understand how racial seeming racial progress or seeming racial progress is made in the United States. And so, and, and probably beyond, but in so much of the examples that he gives, for example, um, Brown versus Board of Education, thinking about, you know, there, there are communities of color who black community, Asian American community, uh, Mexican American communities who've been, who are fighting for access to better education for so many years, um, for more resources. Yet, in the case of Brown versus Board of Education, what Bell argues is that the reason progress was weighed was not because it was the right thing to do, not because this is what communities have been fighting for, but it really converged with this kind of foreign, the foreign perception of the United States at the time. And that that the reason there was racial progress was because there was an interest in it for, for those in power. And so when we progress in that way, it continues to evoke. So there is some racial progress. It feels like a win, but many of the structures that that maintained hierarchy transformed into other structures that maintained hierarchy. So in the case of Brown versus Board of Education, we saw the emergence of resegregation. We saw rezoning of neighborhoods. We saw tracking. And so those same things were maintained. Mm -hmm. In my work, I use interest convergence as a way to help us understand diversifying the teaching force. And so when we think about this incredible need to address the disparities that we see between the growing population of students of color in the United States, over 50%, and the maintenance around 80% white teachers, that, that there is a need, there's an incredible kind of discourse out there right now, or policies, grant initiatives to diversify the teaching force. And so similarly, though, I think what people have been fighting for is self-determination in their education. Communities of color have been fighting for self-determination in their education. They have been fighting for, you know, ha having teachers that reflect them culturally, having a culturally responsive, culturally sustaining curriculum. But those are not necessarily the reasons why we are diversifying the teaching force. We're diversifying the teaching force, as you could look in the literature, because it relates to the academic achievement of students of color, increased academic achievement, it, it relates, it's been demonstrated to show that teachers of color, um, having them in classrooms can lead to higher um, attendance rates or graduation rates because students are more engaged. And so often when we're bringing teachers in through this notion that we could see as, as an interest convergence, right? There's a material benefit for having teachers of color there, therefore we're recruiting them. And so there is some racial progress that we see, like we saw with Brown, but at the same time, we're also seeing the maintenance of racial harm because we're bringing teachers of color in for their material value, but we are often not letting them be their whole, their whole selves or bring their humanistic value in, which is you know, their relationality with students. They're often questioned for their, their pedagogy. They're often overlooked for leadership. So they're often held in, this, in their place where it, it 
connects to translating for families or the ways they teach are, are surveilled. And so I would argue that in a sense, we have to understand that when we diversify the teaching force, that it's ha happening through a lens of interest convergence. And so until we can actually consider paradigmic shifts to what we understand about how teachers should be valued and seen and what we should do to support teachers of color, we're going to continue to see the same racial harm. Warren starts off in a bland manner and you can't tell for a while as he's delivering the opinion what the outcome is going to be. And then he comes to the key line and he says, and we unanimously hold that separate but equal has no place in the Constitution. And it was just electric in the courtroom when he said unanimous. Thank you. And there are so many parallels with what you've just described over here in England, where predominantly the teacher workforce is, is white. Um, there are very few principals and um, head teachers and senior leaders of colour here in England. And again, as, as you've described, the majority of teachers of colour are largely in the classroom and they're not always given the opportunities to undertake professional development that will lead uh, and act as a springboard for their career progression really so it's it, there are interesting parallels there and um, just again for our British audience I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about the Brown versus education case so that our, our listeners have got some background to that some some people may not be aware of it I apologize if I was being <laughs> U.S. centric and in, in skipping over what that was. Um, Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka in 1954 was the legal case that pushed for the federal desegregation of U.S. schools. And so there were several cases that led up to it once Westminster, uh, or sorry, Mendez, the Mendez case was Mexican-Americans fighting for it. Um, and so we see, but Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka was the primary case that called for that desegregation. And actually this was what, so it changed the law, but it actually um, was not reciprocal. So black students were, there were some cases where white students entered predominantly black schools, but for the most part, there was a fear in the hearts of many white families that that their child would be educated by a black teacher. And so white students, uh, black students were integrated into white schools and there was tremendous resistance, tremendous racial violence, protest, uh, federal, the National Guard had to come in in many cases. Uh, there was a lot of kind of federal force towards integration. And actually, there are some statistics that show that within 10 years of integration or desegregation, we saw that 45% of Black teachers lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that was the fallout of, of that legislation, indeed. And do you feel much has changed for teachers of colour nowadays, in, in particularly your state of California? Well, I think 
part of what I think we have to understand is that prior to Brown, especially for many predominantly black schools in the South and other places that uh, students, black students, black communities were educated by black teachers. And after Brown, you saw the resegregation, but you know, I think within 10 or 15 years, schools, so schools are more, were more segregated, I think in the nineties than they were in the sixties, right? So, so we saw this movement of integration that then led to tracking and other things, but then rezoning and then resegregation. But we, we still have that incredible loss in the teaching force. And so I, I've been looking at some statistics lately that have been really frightening when I think about the demographics in the teaching force, because it, it is, so we do see this as, we're at 79% white teachers in a country where over 50% of the students are students of color. But we're also seeing these other layers of demographics that, that contribute to this. So something like it was uh, the deans, associate deans of schools of education, teacher educators, both tenure track and adjunct, school administrators, all of those statistics hover between 85 and 90% white. And so when we're thinking about who's shaping policies and practices in the training of teachers, in the facilitation of teachers, in the professional development of teachers, we're, we're continuing to talk about a predominantly white force. And then we're still recruiting high numbers into our education majors and graduate programs and credential programs. So in your work as a, a teacher educator, given that you have a predominantly white teacher workforce, I assume that attempts are made by universities and other teacher education establishments to prepare um, that teacher workforce for working in an ethnically diverse school setting and, and obviously in an ethnically diverse society and could you just describe how you do that um, particularly in in your state and what are the if you like advantages and disadvantages of doing that for yourself perhaps as a teacher educator of color yes thank you so I, I've worked at several different teacher education programs and currently where I work is actually um, considered an MSI, a minority serving institution. So upwards of 65% of our students are black indigenous or people of color students, right? So that has changed what being a teacher educator means for me in the space. But I, I think that to your question, if teachers are working in an ethnically diverse society, they should of course be prepared to do their jobs, right? which is to serve those students. And so I think what's important, I think, to understand is that the historical purpose of schooling in the United States for communities of color, for BIPOC communities, was one of control, one of indoctrination, one of cultural and linguistic genocide. And so if we understand through critical race theory that those institutions were never torn down and rebuilt, they've just been amended over time we see those remnants, those legacies of racism in schools today. And I think part of it is we can't continue to have an apolitical, and I put that in quotation marks, education of teachers when we are talking about incredibly racialized structures that continue to replicate racial inequity and harm. 
And so my approach is really about this notion of racial literacy. So racial literacy, Lonnie Gunier, who's a Harvard law professor in 2004, an, a critical race scholar wrote a piece about racial literacy, talking about the, the ability to read the racial grammar of the United States. And so being able to, to, to make this parallel for educators who are very steeped in thinking about literacies, right? This is a really powerful tool, I feel, because we understand literacy is something that you can grow. That's something you must work at to grow, right? Your fluency increases the more that you do it, the more that you understand, the more you practice. And the same is true for understanding racism, how to name it, how to analyze it, how to disrupt it. And so I find this as an important entry point for educators who need to have this understanding. You cannot walk in to a school where you're seeing incredible disproportionality of black students in special ed, in suspension expulsion rates. You cannot, incredible disproportionality of English, uh, emergent bilingual students who are not graduating high school and be able to, to say, well, we just need to figure out what to do right now. We have to, we have to understand the history. We have to understand the policies. We have to understand what are the social contexts that are influencing what our students are experiencing and how our teachers are teaching and how our schools are structured so that we can start to interrupt the reproduction of those, of those problems that we're seeing. And so, and I think what's really powerful about bringing critical race theory and racial literacy into teacher education is that we are, we are arming teachers with the capacity to not individualize these problems and not to reflect deeply on the narratives, the dominant narratives that are, exist around, that come from a deficit understanding around grit. Oh, well, if students just learned how to work hard, they could just do it. Or cultural deficits, like, oh, well, these cultures don't value it, or these families don't value it, or these students don't value it. To better have the tools to take a systemic analysis, to take a historical analysis, and be able to ask the questions around, what are we as representatives of the state as representatives of the system, what are we doing to create these patterns and how do we disrupt these patterns? I also think that just like a subject matter competency, this should be seen as a core competency to being an effective teacher. We will not graduate a student that cannot teach biology if they're going to be a biology teacher. But racial inequity is part of the job. <laughs> And so we also have to have teachers who have the competency to do that. We just graduated from high school this past June, and you'd think, <laughs> and you'd think after 12 years, somebody in or out of the classroom would have helped us understand, at a basic level at least, the society we live in. The truth for almost all our classmates is that they don't. In communities around our country, so many of which are racially divided. If you don't go searching for an education about race, for racial literacy, you won't get it. I totally agree with you there. And an analysis of the English teacher standards, teacher professional standards, there is no mention of race, racism, even the term cultural diversity has been er erased over the last 10 years, if not more, 
there are no references to race or ethnicity in the teacher standards. And those policy absences, of course, translate into absences on the teacher education curriculum in England. Is that the case with you in the in the United States or particularly in your university or in California? Well, in California, I think we're, we're unique from other parts of the country where until very, very recently and in very, very few cases, the majority of teacher education to get your credential has to happen in a graduate level. Mm-hmm. And because it has to happen in a graduate level, those programs have been shortened to be competitive, to be one year. And so within those spaces, it becomes very difficult to contain all of the, the ways in which critical discourse, critical pedagogy, critical understandings of the social context of schools had, had been part of teacher education because those things had been additive through additional courses as opposed to woven within. And so when, it, when they are additional and you have to shorten a program and they aren't part of the credential requirements, then those are the things that get strapped out. I would say that many of the things I'm talking about probably not as explicitly tied to racism, but are included in the California teacher performance expectations. So being able to understand, uh, well, I think there actually is a TPE, as we call them, about responding to racism in the classroom. But there is a lot of language that's grown over the years about being able to be responsive to create safe environments for diverse students. And so I think that is one of the the powerful places is that this exists in the requirements of what it means to have a credential. And so my push is really to also reflect that in the kinds of way in, in the teacher education domain as well. As teacher educators, we should be holding ourselves to that same accountability. One of the places that I think we've been able to shift the kinds of political education that teachers have had is uh, we've grown over the last couple of years, which is new for Californian undergrad majors that focus on education. You can't, in most cases, you can't get a credential that way, but you can still have this focus on more like educational studies. And so we have added multiple critical classes there. We have a master's program where we offer critical classes in pedagogies of racial justice, in K through 12 ethnic studies, in critical pedagogy. And so we are, we have, we do have these places in which we're social, socializing and offering students the access to developing their, their racial lenses. And so I think that has been really helpful in terms of providing teachers those tools. But I will say that a lot of it can't happen, a lot of it in the, at least in the past, has had to happen outside of the institution. Yeah, I think that's really interesting about creating a space on the undergraduate programs for these issues of racism and social justice and anti-racism to be developed. And I was interested in how you achieved that within, I guess, the space of the university, but also once teachers are qualified, what professional development is there? Well, where are the safe spaces for them to have conversations about race because those spaces don't necessarily exist in their school environments. So I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about your work in that respect, but particularly 
about your involvement and your co-directorship of the Institute for Teachers of Colour Committed to Racial Justice. I'm really interested in how that developed and how it's developing. In terms of the undergrad with the university, I, you know, as I said before, I work at a considered a minority serving institution. It's considered a Hispanic serving institution in HSI. So we get federal money for that. And and a PZ, which is the Asian American, Native American, Pacific Islander serving institution. So 85% of our students are BIPOC students. And so I think there is, there hasn't been the presence of it necessarily, but there has been an opening to justify why we need to create classes that reflect the histories and understandings of who our students are. Many of our students are Pell Grant recipients, meaning they, their family's income is below a certain level, so they're able to access certain federal grants. And so many of our students are working multiple jobs, and they have experienced the types of things that we were talking about in the educational system. And so they need courses to be able to process and reflect what they've experienced. And so I think for that reason, in our context, it might be a little bit easier to to create those things because it speaks to our students. It's culturally responsive and sustaining to our students. But I would say for the majority of, for many schools across the country, um, many universities are considered PWIs, predominantly white institutions, or even our institution is a historically predominantly white institution that transitioned to an MSI. And so there are, there's a lot of infrastructure that continues to maintain an apolitical, I put that in quotes, predominantly uh, Eurocentric frame in, in the work. And so even in school districts, we're seeing the type of critical education, which has, as you know, we've had these conversations in, changed in the last year to some degree, but there has been, you know, access to some of this education, but it happens at a fairly surface level, or it's really geared towards supporting white teachers who don't have these understandings or teachers who are maybe at beginning stages of these understandings. And so the, the teachers that I am, have become very interested in working with are the teachers of color who have deeper understandings already about race and racism. Because I feel like they're, these are the teachers who entered the profession ready to create transformation, ready to fight for their communities. And we've seen these teachers throughout history from the inception of schooling, we have seen these teachers who reflect communities who've come in to try to protect their communities from the harm of schooling. And we see them today and they don't always have spaces, professional spaces that reflect their ideologies and their visions and their goals. And so that's really where the Institute for Teachers of Color Committed Racial Justice, which we call ITOC comes in. And that space is, so we have an application process and we bring together teachers from across the country and even beyond. We've had a couple people join us from the UK and from Canada in that space as well. Um, this is our 11th year and we've grown a lot over time. And our goal is really to provide that, that racial literacy professional development, that kind of access to that political education that they're not getting elsewhere. And to build community between them because it's often you know, for, for some folks, they're the only ones in their school or the only ones in their districts. Maybe, maybe they're the only person of color, but maybe there are a few other people of color, but often they're also the combination of the racial isolation and the ideological isolation of being justice-oriented, politically-oriented teachers of color. And so bringing those folks together and allowing them access to teach each other, to hear from 
cutting edge scholars from the field who reflect them, who reflect their goals and interests, as well as to develop models of racial justice work that they want to implement in their schools. And how do you achieve this network? Is it through conferences? Is it through, as you mentioned, seminars? And obviously, we're now in, um, you know, COVID times, I assume the internet has worked well in that respect in terms of developing the network but outside covid times how, how was this how did it gain momentum and how did it gain that cohesion that you describe we started this in 2011 and social media was a very different place in 2011 and you know i had written my dissertation about the experiences of of teachers of color and their discourse on race in a teacher education program. And I had presented on that work at a teacher conference, a teacher activist conference. And so there were these teacher activist groups, teachers for social justice and other places across the United States that were you know, bringing together teachers to have this political education. And in that space, I had called for a, a workshop that would be entirely a racial affinity space for BIPOC teachers. And so I think they had not done something like that to, the, to date when I proposed it. And so um, there was some discussion about it and we held the space and the, they were supposed to be no more than 30 people per workshop, but over 60 people lined up because, not because of me or the workshop, but because they wanted to be with each other. Um, and the first thing that they, someone said when they walked in the room was like, I'm passing around a notebook. Can everybody put their name down? <laughs> and so that became our first list of how, of, people of teachers who were politicized, who were interested in doing this work. And so we just sent out emails on email listservs, which those are not as common these days. <laughs> and the first year we had 45 applications for 40 teachers. And then over the years, that has just grown because teachers have told teachers in their networks. And then there are so many you know, teacher groups on social media now. And over time, you know, we were a predominantly California-focused organization, and we've grown to have teachers from all over, all over from Hawaii and Atlanta, or from Georgia and from the, you know, New York State and Washington State, and so all, all these different places, Minnesota. These teachers have have come together, and during COVID, as you said, we did we did transition to a virtual platform, and so we were able to serve the most teachers we have served in the, since we started. So we served last year two hundred and seventy five teachers, and over the ten plus years, I think our total is is over a thousand teachers that have come to the space. Do you have a particular event, an annual event that, if you like, cements that network? Um, and, and apart from networking, what else do the teachers gain from ITUC? For the first nine years, our community was grounded around a summer institute, which was three intensive days where the teachers came together and they listened to, they, you know, they had access to different types of speakers that, you know, in teacher education program, professional development, there are very few, you're, you're often taught by adjuncts, you're often not getting the prominent scholars, the critical scholars, the critical people of color scholars. And so these are all, all the speakers we bring are BIPOC and they're all critical and they're, 
they're doing cutting edge work. Um, we always have a, a, an educator speakers as well. So people who are their peers who are doing this work in amazing ways. And then we have workshops. And so often many of the workshops that we have are, are people who've come to our conference and then have come back the next year to present on work that they've done in their schools. And then we have working group sessions where they actually have built in time to reflect upon the kinds of theoretical frameworks and models that they've seen in their schools. And so I just, I want to be clear that that part of this work is that we, we believe deeply in place-based work. And so we are, people do not come and get packets of this is the curriculum you're going to do on Monday in your classroom. But instead, if we frame these things as here's a model of how somebody did this work in their own context. And now we want to give you time to think about what does this mean for your context and what kinds of applications can you make? And now thoughtfully with coaches and or which are their peers, other peers who've done this work, they'll facilitate spaces where they can develop a plan where they think about who are my allies in this work? What are the resources I have? What are the barriers in this work? Who are, who, who's kind of standing in my way? Who do I, how do I work around that? Who can I rely upon? What do I need? And then be able to create a plan so that they can do that work during the year. And we've tried to, we've had very few, our funding, if we had more funding, we would do more, but uh, racial justice innovation grants where we've tried to support some of the teachers in their work through the year to really build out incredible projects of shifting school cultures, developing and heightening awareness around racial microaggressions in schools or developing a network, a local network for teachers of color to come together to develop this political education and continued support. And so those are the kinds of ways that we've had it in the past. With COVID, we've switched to an ongoing virtual platform. And so this past year, we've had a series of professional development opportunities for teachers. And then we've had coaching for critical math teachers and critical science teachers where experts from the field have been able to support them. Um, we have something called the Fentorship Network where, you know, pushing on ideas of patriarchal mentorship where we have teachers connected to each other to support each other through the year in especially novice teachers with more veteran teachers, but also kind of peer to peer so that they, there's just people who are kind of thinking about similar goals and issues that are connected. Great. Thank you so much. I, I love the idea of a safe space to discuss not just personal experiences, personal professional experiences, but also a safe space where you don't have to explain yourself, you don't have to explain your politics or be almost cowed into not talking about your politics, but a, a, an empowering space where y you can really do some innovative work, but is, which is also supportive, but also, as you say, cutting edge, so that they probably feel very uh, rejuvenated when they come back from the conference and go back into the spaces where they might be the lone teacher of colour in their schools love the idea of having maths and science focus because so often I've been told well what's maths got to do with race <laughs> in terms of the transferability of this um, notion into the institute 
for teachers of colour committed to racial justice. What can people um, in, say, England and other global north countries learn from your work, but particularly from the work of the Institute for Teachers of Colour Committed to Racial Justice? I think there are important lessons that I have learned just from doing this work that are applicable to any kind of racially minoritized community, which is that when we are in institutions that are fraught with white supremacy and racism, it can be exhausting. (laughs) Robin D.G. Kelly, U.S. scholar, has talked about the debilitating ways of always fighting against and that it's important to also dream towards what we're fighting for. And that sometimes has to happen outside of our traditional workspaces. So we have the freedom to build what we need and to be the way we need to be. I think some of the pieces I, I didn't speak of in what we call iTalk is the we bring in artists, we bring in comedians, we have music, we have a, a DJ who is a teacher who told us hey, this space is really quiet our first year. She said, I have um, turntables in my car. Can I bring them in? And uh, so she brought them in and she created this space for us. And it was, it has changed how, you know, the, over time we've grown in understanding that the space needs to be reflective of our whole selves so that we can bring our whole selves of laughter, of joy, of creating into this work and this fights against racial injustice. And so I think part of it is, you know, where do we get to be that? Where, where do we get to be that? And how do we create spaces for that? And then the second part of it, I think, is that schools, at least in the US, and I would imagine in the UK as well, with, we have a lot of testing, that schools are really structured around individualized approaches to learning. They're very individualistic, competitive, you know, there's a, there's a capitalistic emphasis around the structures of schools, which is often in contradiction to many, the ways which many communities of culture, their epistemologies, their ontologies in schools. And so we also emphasize that this is collective work, that, that you, we need to be in this together. And I think for so many, as you said, who go back to their schools and feel like they're the only one, remembering that they're part of a collective or a movement is really powerful And so I think creating spaces for racial literacy that are collective, that are about dreaming, those are things that can exist in other, you know, I think those lessons could shape the work that people are doing outside of the U.S. as well, because we're struggling with, you know, the similar power structures and the similar replication in our institutions. And so just that place to breathe, that place to be and the place to dream are things we need to build if we're going to reimagine the structures. You know, we can't continue to stay in the same boxes of how we do things if we want things to change. And I think, um, again, thinking from a place-based lens, you know, I wouldn't say like, <laughs> here's a structure, here's a prescription of how you would do this in the UK, but, but really thinking about like, here are the, here's the essence of what we're doing. Here are the elements of what we're doing. And, and so, you know, even if you want to start small, even if you want to start to bring a group, you know, create a call a space together for people who are committed to these ideologies, who are experiencing racial marginality or minoritization and who are committed to disrupting that and, and have a conversation of what are you struggling with and what are you hoping to, to change and what are you dreaming for and, and move from there. So it's really a, 
a hopeful space through the times when Trump was your president. How do you keep hope alive, I suppose, is my key question, when there is this landscape of hostility and a barrage of derision from the press almost every day about race and racism in a way that denies our lived experience but also denies our interaction with and in institutional spaces. In the US as well, in September 2020, we had the ban on talking about white privilege and critical race theory in federally funded contexts. And I think what's so interesting about, I would love to see that report that you talked about from yesterday because I'm teaching class on critical race theory right now. And, and we just talked about this on Tuesday. And so, but I think it's important to recognize that those two things go hand in hand. What you said, the legislation that came out in October saying we can't talk about critical race theory and then this report that's denying institutional racism and framing it as motivational or aspirational. Critical race theory is a tool to point out that meritocracy is a myth and that it are, there are institutions and systems that are replicating inequities and that it is a mechanism of white supremacy to blame individuals and communities for not being able to have equal access within a system that is not equitable. And so preventing us from understanding our history or from understanding the ways in which systems operate to replicate inequity and justice is a tool to maintain white supremacy. So these notions of Blaming communities are, they, they, you know, Richard Valencia has a great book about the, the history of deficit thinking over time. And, and, you know, so much of this is embedded in that. And, but, you know, when you bring up Trump, I, you know, we haven't, Trump has not been in the news as much in the last couple of months when we have a new president. And so in my class, I, I just put a picture of Trump from an article and my students, we all had this very visceral reaction. So, so in terms of hopefulness, I, I'm not, I don't know that I have the, the answer for that because it is hard, it is exhausting, it is traumatic to constantly feel like you're under blatant attack in these ways. And, and I would say these problems have not disappeared just because, uh, as you, I don't know if people have been watching US news, but around, you know, there are the, the growing anti-Asian violence that has been continuing, you know, we continue to see anti-Blackness in the U.S. and all those things. Those are not, those are not Trump-related things, right? Those are built into the infrastructure of our country. But to have a figurehead on top of that that is perpetuating and creating policy that's so blatant and, and then have COVID and, I mean, it is, it is exhausting. So I, I'm not sure that I have, like, a lining of hope because I don't want to to minimize or deny that what people are feeling is, is unbearable. But I think, I guess what, what we found in our space is just that being together and remembering who we are outside of what we're constrained by being in the fight at all times doesn't allow us to be whole. Right. And I think that we need to have spaces where we can, Think about our young people and how we want to cultivate our young people in this world outside of those constraints sometimes. I think that there is a, there's a, 
the dream, the freedom dreaming, right? The whole, the, <laughs> you know, there's a movement in the United States right now that has building off of notions of abolitionism and the abolitionist teaching, Bettina Love and the abolitionist teaching network, Goldie Mohammed, these other scholars who are really talking about this. And I think there, there is a, a need to, to feel that kind of freedom dreaming to be able to hold on to, to some hope here. So, Rita, tell us uh, about your first book, which I really enjoyed reading. It's entitled Confronting Racism in Teacher Education, Narratives from Teacher Educators. It was just illuminating for me to actually uh, read it and see so many resonances of my experience in there as well. How did it come about? And tell us how you've built on that book. That book, which you're speaking of, was a co-edited book, which I co-edited with my colleague, Dr. Brief Kaur from Montclair State University. And it is a collection of narratives of teacher educators who are committed to issues of justice who, and the ways in which they're navigating and confronting racism in teacher education. And so what we wanted was to, to have a take of different stakeholders in teacher education from the prominent scholars that many of us read to teacher educators who are not on tenure track jobs who are doing the hard work, the heavy lifts of teacher education and how they together you know, are experiencing this and, and to bring a humanized perspective to their experiences where they could tell these narratives that are woven with theory and woven with analysis, but are really their counter stories to the ways in which they have been pushed down or dehumanized in this fight to transform teacher education. Tell us about your forthcoming book, Teachers of Colour, Resisting Racism and Reclaiming Education. I love the title of that already. So tell us more about that one. Much of what I talked about today is reflected in that book. So this is a sole authored book, which is based off much of my research over the last decade with Teachers of Colour and frames education as a racializing space that teachers of color have experienced from when they entered as kindergartners through their teacher education into the classrooms as as educators. And so using the frameworks of critical race theory and some of the things that I talked about in this podcast today, this book takes 30 counter stories of of teachers of color who are committed to racial justice who are doing this work from exploring their experiences with racism, the impact of those experiences with racism, their resistance and the tools of resistance they employ, and then how some of these teachers have actually worked to reimagine schools. And so it takes us through this journey, this beautiful, powerful, complex journey that teachers of color who are committed to this work are engaging because you see how hard this it is to navigate these structures, but how powerful these teachers are in their belief, their commitment, their passion to really serving their own communities, but then also to not let institutions off the hook around, well, we have these teachers of color and they're doing this great work, so we can just hire them and be done, but really think about, well, what are what is the culpability of teacher education programs and K through 12 schools, school administrators, districts in creating spaces that support the well-being of teachers of color as we, as we bring them into schools. And how do we hold those institutions accountable to the racial climates of these spaces so that we're all growing in our racial literacy? 
My grateful thanks to Dr. Reetha Kohli for her insights into how we move from the theoretical academic space where we study and write about race and racism to engaging in actively supporting teachers and professionals to be themselves in a healing space where they're affirmed and understood. A space in which they can be uplifted by their colleagues to become race activists in their schools and in their classrooms. A hopeful space. I'd like to flag up Rita's excellent books. Her first, entitled Confronting Racism in Teacher Education, Counter-Narratives of Critical Practice. And her second book, Teachers of Colour, Resisting Racism and Reclaiming Education. In this episode, Rita also mentioned the work of other writers, such as Richard Valencia, who writes about the evolution of deficit thinking, educational thought and practice, and in his newer book, Dismantling Contemporary Deficit Thinking, Educational Thought and Practice. She also mentioned the work of Bettina Love, whose work is entitled, We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. Rita also mentioned the work of Goldie Mohammed, whose book is entitled Cultivating Genius, an Equity Framework for Culturally and Historically Responsive Literacy. They sound like great titles. I'm certainly going to be following those up myself. Please join us for our next episode, where Dan and I talk to Professor Frank Keating about race and mental health. Join us then. Thank you for listening.